0: Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 7. Again, we had focused on the family uh, so directly at the beginning of our year that I uh, am choosing not to do a Father's Day message as I didn't do a Mother's Day message. Um, But I reiterate that uh, this not being because we don't appreciate you fathers and a happy Father's Day to you. We are continuing, however, in our Ecclesiastes series, stepping into verses 1-6, through the mindset of a better way. Last week, we spent our time looking through the entirety of Ecclesiastes 6. The message was entitled, A Common Evil, Which Demands a Better Way. Solomon called this common evil an evil disease. And this evil disease which he was talking about was and is the disease of self. But the degree to which we identify a disease is only as good as our our capacity to give a better way. It's one thing for us to be able to say there is a problem. But knowing that we have a problem... Is one thing. Being able to cure or help or uh, take care of that problem. Presenting a solution is another. It's important that we as Christians don't just get stuck on identifying problems. We live in a society right now that is really good at identifying problems. And not as good at offering solutions. What good is it? How constructive is it to identify problems when we don't offer solutions? What good is it if I tell my wife this is a problem and this is a problem and this is a problem in the home if I don't also say, and these are ways that it could be fixed? What good is it for a, for a church body to say, hey pastor, this is a problem and this is a problem and this is a problem without offering some constructive solutions? How good is it in any, in any, any scenario to just complain without saying, and these are the ways that I think things could be fixed? As humans, as I mentioned, we we seem to much prefer the process of complaining to the process of problem solving. And when it comes to a spiritual context, it is very important that when we tell people what is wrong, we also help them understand how to make it right. Because when it comes to spiritual problems, the Word of God offers us spiritual solutions. And so last week we considered a problem, and that problem is self. It's a common evil. It's an evil disease, Solomon said. And as we considered it, we mentioned this idea that when we're when we're struggling against something, there are times in our lives where we're struggling, whether it's we're trying to fix something, or we're trying to do something, and, and it's not working out, and we just say, there must be a better way. Well, Solomon saw self, the disease of self, the side effects of self The results of self And all of the evil that it caused And he's saying that There must be a better way Well today we're going to begin To look at that better way We'll have several weeks Of considering the better way And this week I'd like to present to you What we might call the mindset Of the better way The evil disease is self And today we're going to begin To understand this better way By considering the mindset Of those that have Found Or are seeking the better way And if I can sum up In one word The mindset of the better way the, the spiritual concept That we'll be speaking about today It's the word Death Death Now as I say that Where I'm going with it Is effectively selflessness But the word that Solomon uses Is death And I think that in doing so It gives us a better picture, a better idea of what God wants from us. He wants you to die to yourself. I begin in Romans 12. You can stay in Ecclesiastes 7. But in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This passage is likely familiar to many of you, but, but it makes an interesting command, does it not? The command is that we be a living sacrifice. Now, by nature, when we think of a sacrifice, as it would have been understood by those reading, a sacrifice dies. That's what a sacrifice does, right? By nature of a sacrifice, it must die. Jesus Christ had to die in order to become our sacrifice. The lamb had to die to become our sacrifice. In fact, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And yet, that concept of sacrifice, which is a concept of death, is paired with the word living. That we are to be a living Sacrifice that while we are not called to die physically, some of us may be in martyrdom, but while while God does not call us as in general as believers to die physically, we are still on the altar. We are still dead to self that we are alive, yet we reckon ourselves dead to us. Our will is dead unto God's will. Dead to yourself, dead to your way, dead to your will, dead to your wants, dead to your desires. We live in a society that is consumed with you. Consumed with self. Do what you want. What will make you happy? What will make you fulfilled? Young people, some of you are thinking about the future. And you might be talking to various people and they'll say, what are your plans for what's coming up next? And as you talk about it, Everything that they say will be about, well, be sure that you do what you want. Be sure that you are enjoying what you do. Make it all about you. It's all about you. May, may I be a voice of perspective in the midst of other voices on this? Stop thinking about what you want. Stop caring about what will make you happy. Stop setting your mind on your dreams, your desires. And instead, direct your energy and your dreams and your efforts towards finding out what God wants for you. What God wants for you. Put yourself on the altar, which is your reasonable service, Paul says. Stay alive. You're living. But be a sacrifice. But kill your will. And direct your thoughts and your desires and your ambitions and your efforts toward what God wants of you. And you know what? the best part of this is and we've talked about this all throughout Ecclesiastes we'll talk about it more the best part of this is is that when you find what God wants of you you'll find that it's actually what you want also that you cannot be happier than when you are there where God wants you happier than you could possibly ever imagine in fact say I don't believe it well I can tell you and others can tell you but you won't the, the day that you'll know it is the day that it happens the day that you've made yourself a living sacrifice and you're on the altar and you are where God wants you is the day that you'll realize that you couldn't be happier. You're going to have to know it by by faith. Now we'll talk more about this. We'll come back to these verses in our application today. But let's dig into our exposition in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I wanted to start there to give us a frame of reference into the New Testament. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 beginning in verse 1 we read this. Uh, Solomon says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Remember, we're talking about the better way. The better way. The mindset of the better way. And we begin by focusing on this first phrase. A good name is better than precious ointment. When Solomon introduces this better way, he begins with your testimony. Your reputation. The, when the Bible speaks of a person's name, it can speak of it in one of two ways. Uh, first, it can be the label by which you are called. Uh, you walk up to someone and you say, hello, my name is Jamin. What is your name? And you would expect them to say something like, hello, my name is Joe or Sue or whatever they are called by. Whatever their identification is, they will they will give you their name. And that's one way. That's one way that the Bible speaks of a name, that that a person was named something. However, the concept of a name can also speak of testimony. Testimony or reputation, can't it? The essence of who a person is, the, the, the whole of their being, like in this verse, if I were to say Legacy Baptist Church has a good name in Buffalo, we're not saying that people like the name Legacy. We're saying that our church has a good reputation. Our church has a good testimony. When people hear the name of our church, when people consider our church, they consider it in a positive light. That's the idea of having a good name. Likewise, if I were to come up to you and I were to say, Hello, what is your name? And you were to tell me, Well, I'm honest. I have integrity. I'm a hard worker. I'd be a little confused, right? Because I'm not asking for your reputation. I'm asking for your moniker. And so in this case, we're seeing this concept of a good name. And by the way, quite regularly, most often in Scripture, when the, the concept of a name comes up, it's speaking of a person's testimony, a person's reputation, or the essence of who they are. And that's not wrong in its proper context. In fact, when the Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, it's not saying believe that Jesus' name was J-E-S-U-S, is it? It's saying believe his person, his work, the essence of what he said. Believe on his testimony. Believe on his declaration. Believe believe on his name. When we say pray in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean we always have to say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of our prayers. To invoke the name of Jesus is to pray aligned with his will, aligned with his character, aligned with who he is. And here at the beginning of verse 1, we have a contrast between two different emphases of living. You have a person who acts good, contrasted with a person who looks good, or more literally, the person who smells good. Precious ointment. The contrast is between someone who isn't necessarily perfumed up, but who has a good reputation, and the person who smells all pretty, But has a terrible reputation The person who looks good on the outside But you don't trust that person You don't want to spend time with that person You don't want your kids around that person You don't want to be around that person And the person who, you know what They may not be the most Clean or the most Whatever it might be They may not look the best But you know what They're good people It's a good person Someone you'd want to be around. Someone you want your children to be around. This is the contrast. Solomon highlights the better way. And he says the better person. Is the person who. Though outwardly may not be beautiful and clean. Inwardly is a person of integrity. And virtue. Much better than the person who is immaculately presented on the outside. But they are evil or dishonest. A good name. Is better than precious ointment. Men. Women. Young people A heart of purity before the Lord Is better than anything else that you can offer What does Proverbs 31 tell us About the virtuous woman Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain But a woman that feareth the Lord She shall be praised What's that saying A good name is better to be chosen Than precious ointment Better to be a virtuous woman Than a beautiful woman Better to be a virtuous woman Than a comely woman Young men, better to be a virtuous man than a handsome man. Better to be a virtuous man than a strong man. Better to be a virtuous man than a cable And if you're handsome and strong too, that's that's great. Congratulations. But be virtuous, because a good name is rather to be chosen than precious ointment. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs nineteen, verse one better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Better to have no outward benefits, but have inward virtue. Much better than having all the outward benefits, but no inward virtue. I mentioned already Proverbs 31.30. Ladies, favor is deceitful, beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Better to have no outward beauty, but be a woman of integrity, of virtue, one who loves the Lord, than to be a woman of incredible physical beauty, but to be spiritually empty, spiritually bankrupt. As Solomon presents this better way, he says that the better way is about your spiritual integrity, not about your physical attributes. It's about how clean you are on the inside, not how clean you are on the outside. It's about how yielded you are to God, not how well you can present yourselves before the eyes of others. The better way is the way where God's happiness is more important to you than your own happiness or the happiness of others. And immediately we have to ask, are we on the better way? Is this the disposition of our hearts? As Solomon continues, he describes the mindset of the person who has found the better way. And we see this in the second half of verse 1. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. According to the logic of this better way, the day that a man's life ends is better than the day when life began. And I want you to think about this with me. Remember what, what the Bible, what we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember that we have been called to be a living sacrifice, to be alive, but to be wholly yielded to the will of God. Now, when we live this way, it's not that we stop living at all. It simply means that we start living for something different. We start living for eternity rather than living for today. So you place yourself in the shoes of a person who's living for eternity. I hope you're already in those shoes. But if not, place yourself into the shoes of somebody who's living for eternity. Now, if you're living for eternity, then your investment is where? It's in eternity, right? Then the things you're doing today, you're investing in tomorrow. You're not living them for today. You're investing them. Which means where is all the reward for your labor? It's not necessarily in today, is it? The reward for your labor is invested in eternity. Now, we do this all the time in our lives. We think ahead. We plan ahead. Have you ever been saving up for a vacation? You have to make a decision between certain things because you want to go on this vacation and you want the reward of that vacation. So you're going to invest in that vacation. So you stop getting your $4 coffees in the morning and you take that $4 every day and you put it into a fund to go on vacation because you're you're investing in something that you're looking forward to and you don't buy that new thing even though your thing is old. It's still working so you're not going to buy a new one and you're going to take the money you would have put into it and you're going to invest it into that vacation. You're going to put it in a particular fund to to, uh, invest it in something that is ahead or, or Or we could even talk about actual investing, right, where you're putting money in the bank and it's accruing interest or you're putting money in a fund or you're putting money in the stock market or whatever it might be. And you're gaining something back from it in anticipation of the day when you will be living off of your forward thinking investments or maybe young people. You are coming toward the end of your your uh, years in the house, and maybe you're starting to think toward uh, continuing education. And so you've started doing some college classes. You've started doing some, some uh, uh, prep work. You're investing your time, whereas your friends might be out doing other things. You're doing some extra work now, investing in your future. And you're doing that work, not just to do it, but because you believe that by doing so, you're actually going to gain something back and something greater back later, right? That's what investing is all about. In each of these cases, you're living for something in the future, even at the expense of now. You're not doing something, you're not buying something, you're not spending time in one area, you're investing that time somewhere else for something future. You're looking for a payoff down the road. And in each of these cases, you deny yourself a current, a, a, a contemporary pleasure, in anticipation of a greater pleasure when the investment comes to fruition. This is what Solomon's speaking of here. If you choose the better way, the mindset of the better way, then the day of your death will be, the be- will be better than the day of your birth, because on that day, your investment in eternity comes to fruition. On that day, the day of your death, all of the sacrifices that you have made in this life, putting it into the bank account of eternity, will come back with interest. So Solomon says if we are wise, we will seek the better way. And if we're seeking the better way, then we ought to be living with an eye toward heaven. The things which we're doing today should not be for today intrinsically, but they should be for eternity In other words, the better way is God's way above my way. God's way above self. We continue in verse 2. He says, It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Solomon continues to contrast. He gives uh, more teaching on the better way, and he says, Better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Better the day when you're considering death than the day when you're celebrating life. Pastor, this is so pessimistic. Well, first, Solomon doesn't try to be overly optimistic in this book, does he? Because he's thinking about life without God. It's a pretty pessimistic thing. But if I may soften the edges of this for you, if if we can put it this way, better is the day when you're celebrating eternal life than the day when you're celebrating temporal life. That's what he's saying. And notice why it is that the funeral is better than the feast. Solomon says, because every man is going to die. This is the end of all men. Every man is going to die. On the day of the wedding feast, we celebrate life. We celebrate joy. We celebrate new beginnings. On the day of the birth feast, uh, when, when we celebrate a child being born, we celebrate life and joy and beginnings. Now, many funerals today are called a celebration of life. And from a human perspective, that's fine. I'm not here to say that we shouldn't be thinking of funerals that way or whatever the case may be. But Solomon says that a funeral is better than a feast not because we get to think back upon the life that was well lived.
1: But because it causes
0: each of us to remember that we're going to die. And if we're all going to die, then maybe that should change the way we live. Maybe that should inform the way we live. If you know you're going to die... And you know what's coming on the other end of that, which is an eternity. Then maybe the way that we live should be directed by the reality that we're going to die. Moses wrote it this way in Psalm 90. I'll read to you the first 12 verses. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord. Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations Before the mountains were brought forth Or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world Even from everlasting to everlasting Thou art God Thou turnest man to destruction And sayest return ye children of men For a thousand years in thy sight Are but as yesterday when it is past And as a watch in the night Thou carriest them away as with the flood They are as asleep in the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The day of our years are three score and ten. That would be seventy. Seventy. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, 80 years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So, he says, conclusion, because life is short, so teach us to number our days. That we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Moses says, God is a fearful God, that life is short. as Life is as in the morning, the grass springing up, and it's strong, and it's healthy, and then the evening comes and it withers. It's cut off. That's it. Life is like that. And then there's eternity. So Moses says, Father, help us learn how to number our days. To understand that that life is short so that we can take the days that we have and apply them unto wisdom. And live them to the fullest for the Lord. Teach us that every day counts. And that it doesn't just count for today but it counts for eternity. Teach us to live more for the day of our death than for the days of our life. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9-11. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Paul says, knowing that... The Lord is fearful, and knowing that we will all be judged, we're busy about the work of the Lord. Because there's coming a day where God will take everything that we've done, and He'll set it before us, and we'll be judged. And Solomon tells us that this place of best good, the place where our heart ought to rest, the place where our priorities ought to be found, the seat of this better way is the house of mourning because this is the place where a man considers most deeply the the truths of God that God is real that He's there and that our life counts for more than just this life it counts for eternity when we go into the house of mourning it may just be that we'll consider our end and we'll be wiser for it we continue in verse 3 Solomon says sorrow is better than laughter For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Now we know that we're still in the context of the day of mourning, the reality of death, because the next verse were there as well. But I would like for us to pause for a moment and consider the depth of the statement here in verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, he says. The better way is paved, not with constant laughing, not with constant levity. The better way is paved with sorrow. Because sorrows impact the heart, and it can make us better, can't it? You'll find in your lives that some of the most fruitful times in your lives, whether that's emotionally, uh, spiritually, even physically, are hard times. It is in these hard times that faith, trust, obedience, and character are forged. Character is forged through difficulty, isn't it? If you've never had difficulties, then you probably don't have a lot of character. Faith is forged through trial, If you've not had a lot of trials, then you probably don't have a lot of faith. One man put it this way, It is doubtful whether God can truly bless a man greatly until God has first hurt him deeply. Well, what does God's Word have to say about it? Psalm 119, verse 71. The psalmist wrote, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. The psalmist says that his afflictions... Caused him to flee to the word of God Caused him to flee to the law of God Caused him to go to the, the word of God For comfort and for instruction And so he saw his affliction as a good thing because in those times of affliction, he was drawn closer to God. Our Lord tells us, Matthew five verse four, "Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted." Luke six twenty one, "Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled." Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Jesus says, "They who mourn and uh, uh, on, in this life are blessed; their sorrow will be turned to comfort, into laughter." Do you see the link to what Solomon is teaching? It is good to abide in the house of mourning now, if it must be so. If it will compel our heart to be what God wants us to be for future joys. That sorrow is better than laughter because sorrow brought on is brought on by righteous suffering and sacrifice in this world is actually an investment into the world to come. Now, if you bring sorrow upon yourself, you're not investing anything. You choose a sinful lifestyle, but those things can still help you, can't they? They can still bring you back to God like the prodigal son. We'll talk about him in Luke in a little while. And if we can just get practical for a moment, we'll talk about this mourner application. Let us seek with all of our hearts to gain wisdom through gaining perspective. Nobody enjoys the times of life that are defined by sorrow. But can we understand that trees that are not pruned do not bear as much fruit as those which are? Can we understand that there are some blessings in life that can only be accessed through tribulation? Can we understand that muscles don't get stronger unless they're torn? There was a day in the life of Jeremiah the prophet where God called him to go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he watched the potter working upon a pottery wheel. And as he was watching, Jeremiah tells us what he saw in verse 4 of Jeremiah 18 says, "In the vessel which he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make it. Jeremiah watched the potter do his work and saw this clay pot being formed. And if you've ever seen a potter working on a pottery wheel, they start with a lump and then that lump is spinning and they begin to form it and they put a divot in the center and then they, they work the, the, the thickness that they need and then they pull it up and they pull that clay up and it begins to form the way they want it to. But if that pot... If, it, if it's not even, or if one of the walls gets too thin, what happens? Well, as that, that clay thins out, and as it's moving, it'll collapse. Or it'll get lopsided. It won't turn out quite right. And so the pot collapses. And when this happens, the potter, seeing that the vessel is not what it otherwise should be, what does he do? He puts the clay back together, and he does it again. He makes it a new vessel. He tries again. He reforms it. And God used this as a warning to the nation of Israel, particularly the nation of Judah, regarding their own chastening. That God sees them as a lopsided pot, as a collapsed pot, and he's going to have to reform them again. And sometimes the reforming process is a painful process. Sometimes, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to be torn down before we can be built back up properly. And this process of being torn down in order that you can be built back up properly is not a process that's found in the house of laughter. It's a process that's found in the house of mourning. It is in these times of sadness of our countenance, the times that don't exactly put smiles on our faces. It's in these times that our heart is made better. These times are the times of pruning so that we can then bear more fruit. My daughters and I just finished reading a book and in this book there was a father and he was plowing the fields. And as he was plowing the fields, there were tall grasses in those fields and he was finding it extremely difficult to plow the fields because of the depth of the roots on the prairie and these tall grasses. So he's he's plowing he's plowing and then one day they noticed in the distance smoke and they realized that there was a fire on the prairie. And so they go through the process of protecting their home and doing a back burn, uh, burning, burning the, the prairie back the other direction from their house in order to cause the fires to meet and to keep the houses from burning down and they were able to do so and the houses were saved and everything was was fine but then after that it speaks of the father going back out and doing the plowing again and while the the process of the burning of the prairie and many animals were displaced and animals were killed and and there was a danger to them and there was a danger to their house and it caused them to, to, to be exhausted and, and to have to put out all of this effort to, to put out the fire and to protect everything that they had that process of burning brought about a circumstance where now all that grass was gone and the father was able to plow the field much easier and then the next year whereas the prairie had been dry it grew back green sometimes there needs to be a fire to burn away the dead stuff in order for the good stuff to grow sometimes we've got to be pruned back so that we can bear more fruit And this is the idea that Solomon gives us here. He says, sorrow is a better way. Because in the place of sorrow, sorrow is better than laughter. It doesn't mean never have laughter. But just know that sorrow is more productive. And so don't resent the sorrows. Because they can form in us godliness. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The foolish heart lives for nothing but what this world can offer him. He lives for enjoyment. From enjoyment to enjoyment. And if it's not enjoyment, then he just escapes it with more amusement. The wise heart, however, Solomon says, lives in the house of mourning. He lives for the day of his death. For what do we live? Where is our investment? Is your heart in the house of mirth? Of pleasure? Is pleasure all you seek? If so, Solomon says, you're a fool. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of the wise rests in the house of mourning. Rests in constant consideration of the day that will come. Inevitably, unless the Lord comes first, you're going to die. Right? And the wise man lives for that day. Verses 5 and 6. Solomon says, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Man doesn't like to think about death, but there is profit in considering our end. Man doesn't like to be sad, but there is profit in sadness. It makes the heart better. Man doesn't like to hear rebuke, but rebuke is how we grow, isn't it? Solomon says it's far better to hear these rebukes by wise men than to hear the Song of Fools. Far better to have ten people saying, I don't think you're right, than ten people that are just yes men. Who will confirm every thought of your mind. The idea surrounding the Song of Fools is what we often might call today escapism. That a person, rather than face his troubles, troubles and difficulties, or rather than face the reality that he's not perfect, will go to distractions in order to ignore his responsibilities or will surround himself by people that will only confirm him in whatever he thinks and does. And Solomon gives a wonderful illustration of this in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. I love this. You know, when you light a fire and you get a nice coal bed going and you, you put some thorns in there, some needles... It crackles, right? Or even if you just put it in small sticks, you get those crackles and the pops and whatnot of the sticks under the heat of the fire. And that's a beautiful sound, isn't it? I love that sound. As a matter of fact, there are many white noise machines that use that sound, right? They'll have fireplace on there and you do it and you hear the crackles and the pops and the, the, the those sounds. It's it's a sound that soothes people. And sometimes in the winter when I'm working on my sermons and I can't be upstairs or if our fireplace isn't going, I'll actually just put that sound on on my computer while I'm working to hear the sound of a fire. It's a beautiful sound. But do you know what also, what's what's happening to create that sound? Woods being destroyed. Consumed. Right? While the sound is beautiful, the process of creating that sound is actually a process of destruction. Think about that. So is the laughter of the fool. It might be enjoyable in the moment. It might sound good to your ear. But that same process of enjoyment in the laughter of fools is actually a process of destruction. That's what this is saying. In the same way you have the crackling of thorns under a pot, so too is the laughter of the fool. Might sound good, but it's a process of destruction. Men and women living for today, not caring about eternity, and so living, laughing, and loving, but the sound of their laughter and song is actually the sound of their life being consumed by that which cannot satisfy. Do you see the gravity of the picture Can we gain perspective that to invest our time in the things of this earth alone is to lose it? Life is time. What is time but life? What is life but time? Life is measured in time. And every single second that ticks away is a second that you cannot have back. Every moment you spend, you will never, ever get back. And the question is, how much time have I burned up listening to the laughter of fools? How much life have I burned up in meaningless amusements and empty pursuits and fruitless endeavors? How much better to hear the rebuke of the wise? How much better to be told, hey, you're doing this wrong, you need to correct it, than to go on for a couple more years doing it wrong because you don't want to listen to anybody? How much better to accept circumstances of sorrow and live through them and and, and weep through them and come out on the other side and have learned something and have grown in your faith and grown in your knowledge of yourself and of your God than to avoid all sorrow, to escape the realities of this life and to waste all that time. How much better to be rebuked and corrected and compelled to profit than to have never heard any of it and to simply be wasting our time? I'd like to ask two questions of you. And then present a statement as we apply this morning. Question number one. Do you despise times of sadness? Do you despise times of sadness? Whether that be spiritual, physical, emotional. In the days of Job, as Job sat in sackcloth and ashes and mourned over his trials. Of course, Job had gone through a great deal, if you're familiar with the story. The first man to speak to him was a man named Eliphaz the Temanite. Each of these men who sought to comfort Job had errors in their logic. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book, God corrects all but the final man and tells, tells them that they were incorrect in their counsel as a whole. But they also did have truthful things to say. They just oftentimes gave uh, incorrect application to their truths. And Eliphaz the Temanite said this in Job 5, verses 6 and 7. Although affliction cometh not forth out of the dust... Neither doth trouble spring up out of the, spring out of the ground yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Though affliction doesn't just come from nowhere. There's always a reason, right? There's always a reason for, for things. Whether it's somebody hurts you or you hurt somebody else or whether it's somebody got sick or, 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 or um, uh, somebody's healing or, or, or the treatment for someone being sick or, or whether it's uh, bad investments or, or someone stole something or whatever it is that would bring sorrow with not having enough money. Whatever it is, there's always a cause and effect relationship. But whether or not we regard those cause and effect relationships, what we understand is that man will have trouble. Trouble is going to come. Trouble is a part of life. Pain is a part of life. Death is a part of life. Sorrow is a part of life. Confusion and disagreements and disappointments are a part of life. And while it seems that some people have far more trouble than others, that some people are haunted by continual trouble and others experience only a little bit, sorrow is a part of life. And the wise man, through deliberate determination, will see sorrow as a tool that God can use to grow him. Don't despise sorrow. Because times of great sorrow are often times of great spiritual growth. Don't despise sorrow. Because sorrow is often the fire that God uses to purge our impurities. Some of you are in pain today. And I'm not telling you that you need to love that pain, pain for all sorts of reasons. You don't need to love that pain. You don't need to be glad in a material or or a a, um, human sense that you're going through a hard time. But can you appreciate what you're going through? Can you appreciate what God can do through those times of pain? I mentioned exercise a little bit earlier. I do that from time to time. When you exercise, there's a process of pain, isn't there? Exercise is pain. You're running, your legs start to ache. You're lifting, and whatever muscle group you're working on starts to ache. You're out working, and you're going to get tired. You're going to get achy. There's going to be a pain process. The next day you wake up, and you're sore. Your back is sore. Your legs are sore. Whatever, you're sore. Your muscles are sore. That process of pain, of your muscles tearing, of them being sore, is the process through which you get stronger. I don't have to like the pain that I'm going through, but can I appreciate what the pain is doing for me? Sorrow can bring families closer together. Sorrow can bring me to the end of myself and compel me to finally come to obedience. Most people that have ever been brought to the end of themselves who have finally said, okay, I give in, God, have that, that give in has come at the end of, of trial. Sorrow can be the basis for my ability to comfort others. Second Corinthians 1, that we comfort others with the comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted. How can I comfort others if I haven't been comforted by that pain myself? We can give general truths, but the best comforters are those who have gone through the trial sorrow can compel me to flee to christ for relief and so learn new things about god learn new things about my faith uh, ascend to new heights of spiritual trust some things can only be known by experiencing them have you ever been to a restaurant or you've had some food dish maybe a dessert and you've you've had this and it, it, it was it was fantastic and then you're trying to describe it to someone else and it doesn't really work, does it? You're trying to describe how, how, how tender and how juicy that steak was and the seasonings were just right. Or you're trying to describe that chocolate, uh, dessert and, and, and how it tasted and how it melted in your mouth. And you're trying to describe it to someone. And then at the end, you're, you're looking at them and they're trying to, they're trying to relate. They're like, oh yeah, mm. And then you just kind of have to say, well, I guess you just have to experience it. Go try it sometime. We well, you know our spiritual life is kind of that way. There are some things about God's attributes that you can only know when you've tried it, when you've tasted him. There are some people who have experienced sorrows, which you and I have not, maybe which you and I never will. And they will know God in a way that you may never because of what they've been through. And may I encourage you to gain wisdom. You don't go, don't go seeking sorrow. (laughs) But when it comes... May I encourage you to be willing to appreciate it, to not despise it. Hebrews says it this way about chastening. Chastening is a form of sorrow. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. We don't enjoy chastening. My children don't like it when I chasten them. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Those that are exercised in chastening are the ones that will yield the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. And this is the way it is. This is the way it has to be. The results only come after the exercise. I cannot sit on the couch and eat potato chips all day and then expect the results of exercise. Doesn't work that way. Likewise, you cannot expect the results of righteousness if God does not exercise you spiritually. So don't despise seasons of sadness. Number two, do you redeem your time? You know the Bible says God does not waste trouble on us. He can even use our weaknesses, our poor choices and our sins for his glory. Many of you know uh, my testimony. I was saved at an early age, but I spent my uh teenage years effectively wasting them. Uh I didn't walk away from the Lord. I was still in church. I still wanted to do what was right, but I wasted my time. My time was pretty much consumed with either school, which it wasn't a waste of time, or video games and television all day. I didn't do much else. I didn't pers- I didn't I didn't follow any reasonable or, or or redeeming pursuits. Now I've learned some things, I've gained perspective. The Lord didn't waste that on me. But I wasted so much time. And I wish that I could have that time back. That I could have used it profitably. Now I'm not saying we don't need amusements to break up life. We do. But there's difference. There's a big difference between using amusements to break up life or living life for amusements, isn't there? There's a difference between using amusements when I have some free time to, to enjoy life and to make the most of life and defining my life by amusements, living for amusement and, and little more. And we live in a culture where amusement defines life for most people. And if you're one of those, if you're living defined by amusements, may I just tell you this, you are wasting your life. You're wasting it. You're wasting it. Hours and hours of life that you can't get back. You can always make more money, right? Some comes, some goes. You can always make more money. You can always... uh, Get more possessions. You know, possessions come, possessions go. We sell some, we get some. Time is not that way. Whole days given over to things which serve no redeeming purpose, hold no redeeming value. Hours a day spent wasted on nothing of value. I was reading an article the other day talking about... um, um, Video games and the the multiplayer online video games and how many young men are no longer achieving anything in life because they're achieving things in video games and it actually activates the same place in the brain that you've actually achieved something except that all they've achieved is sitting on their couch all day, right? And yet they feel like they've achieved something and they walk away from that video game feeling like they've achieved but they've done nothing, nothing of value to anybody. It's a digital life. It's fake. Again, I'm not saying we can't play video games. I'm not saying we can't watch television. What I'm saying is every moment we do is a moment we don't get back. And so we need to be careful. We need to be balanced. We need to redeem the time. We need to use this world without abusing this world. Your time is finite, and you have no idea when it will end. It could be today. Any of us could slip into eternity today. could be a year. It could be 50 years. But time is a resource which is only consumed, which you cannot get back, and time is life. I want to take you, I want, I would like to take you to a parable in Luke 12, but I'm not going to today for sake of time, and we'll be getting there soon in our Sunday evening services. So I would encourage you, if you want to take some time with your family this week, to walk through Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Talk about it and think about it carefully. Luke 12, 13 to 21. For today, however, I'd like to apply through Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Paul says this, And that knowing the time, That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Paul says, you're a believer now. You're no longer living in darkness. You're now in the light. The day, the night is is gone. The day is at hand. The the son of righteousness has has shined his light into your heart. So stop wasting time. Get busy doing things for him. Don't spend your time doing what the world is doing. Don't spend your time in strife and in envy. Leave that stuff behind and get busy doing right. It's time to wake up out of our slumber and get busy doing the work. When the Holy Spirit is indwelling, the light of the gospel has been shined into our hearts. This is a precious time. It's a time to cast off the works of darkness, our efforts rooted in deadness to the world, our efforts rooted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and to live in the light of the gospel. It's a call to live for the day of our death rather than for the days of our life. It's a call to invest in eternity rather than just investing in today because Christ's return is getting nearer every day. Now is our salvation closer than when we believed. Every moment that we sit here, every moment of our lives is one moment closer to the day of of our salvation, the day where, where we'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, the day where we'll stand before the Lord. And with this passage in mind, I cross-reference you to Ephesians chapter uh, 5, verses 14 to 16. Ephesians 5, 14 and 16, where Paul writes, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Because Christ has given us light, what should we do? He says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Don't be a fool, walk as a wise man, redeem the time. What did Solomon say the wise man does? He lives in the house of mourning. What does Solomon say the fool does? The fool lives for laughter. He lives in the house of mirth. So let's redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. So the question is this do you redeem your time? Have you been redeeming your time? Has there been time this week that you've invested in eternity? Has there been time on a daily basis that you invest in eternity? Are you living just for the days of this life or are you living for the day of your death? Remember where we began this morning. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy. Holy. Acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This passage calls for us to be a living sacrifice to live for the day of our death. It's what we often call dead to self and alive unto Christ. Christ. Romans 6 describes us as having been buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. And the reason why we die to self is so that we would bear eternal reward. That when we live for the day of our death, we are investing in eternity. So I'd like to give you one more point today. That final point, I apologize, is actually not up here. I, I, I left the slide out, but I've got the verses that I wanted to go to. That final point, you've heard it every week. Man can find lasting satisfaction. Man can find lasting satisfaction. And I go to close to John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. Verses 23 and 24 say this, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die... It bringeth forth much fruit. What a beautiful illustration here. Jesus says a corn of wheat in itself is only a corn of wheat. The sum total of its worth is that single kernel. But when that corn of wheat dries up on the stalk and it dies and it falls to the ground, it germinates and then an entire stalk grows out of that one corn. It multiplies itself a hundred, perhaps a thousandfold. But in order to bear that kind of fruit, in order to multiply itself, in order to become more than what it is, it must first die. Brethren, sisters in Christ, if you want to become more In what you are if you want to become more for Christ than what you are if you want to invest in eternity and have that fruit you, you have to first die his application Jesus' application found in verses 25 and 26 he that loveth his life shall lose it and he that hateth his life that means to reject it in this world shall keep it unto eternal life unto life eternal excuse me If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. That's where the fruit is found. Those who live life for this life, look, you're wasting your time. And you're losing time. And you're losing life. And you can't get it back. But if you live for the day of your death. I'm not saying you're looking forward to it in that sense. But if you live for the day of your death. Solomon says this is the better way. You're investing in eternity. And this life will pay dividends. That will be that little corn of wheat which will fall to the ground and die. But will bring forth much fruit. Is that you this morning? Are you a servant of Christ? Jesus says, if any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Let's pray together.